when somebody gives you advice, respond with curiosity and talk to those folks, even though it might be difficult. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Chris Wood. Chris Wood is a medical physicist and serial entrepreneur with over 30 years of experience in radiology software. He started at Moffitt Cancer Center doing medical imaging AI research in the late 1980s. Crazy how far we've come since then. And while at Picker International, he programmed one of the first 3D visualization computers, sold commercially in radiology, and led the development of one of the first image-guided surgery systems used clinically. He then worked at Siemens Ultrasound, managing over 100 software engineers. After Siemens, he founded two companies in medical imaging, Conferma and Clario, leading them both to successful exits. He is currently the CEO and re-founder of RevealDX. We'll talk a little bit about what that means later. This is one of those episodes where I am just, you're going to hear in my voice how excited I am to have Chris on. He is living a career I aspire to, having founded successfully and built multiple startups in the radiology space. He's seen every trend, you know, so many meaningful trends in radiology from an entrepreneur's standpoint. And so there's no better person to talk to about all things innovation, technology, startups than Chris. This was destined to happen. So thanks so much, Chris, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Great to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background and how, you know, how you found your way from medical physics to the world of radiology. Yeah, well, the choice of physics was basically just what I was interested in. So I started out in community college and then went to Drew University and tried a bunch of different things, but ended up really being mostly interested in physics. Then when I went to University of South Florida and applied to graduate school, there were two choices I had. One was to get funded through a program funded by DOD and look at laser tracking systems for missiles. And then the other was medical physics. And I decided to choose medical physics, try to help people instead of blowing them up. And it was just that simple. <laughs> and then fell in love with it immediately, just immediately fell in love with medical physics. Uh, I got to play around with MRI images. I got to play around with MRI scanners. We had a program that involved both Moffitt Cancer Center as well as the VA Hospital, University Diagnostic Institute, the university. So it was just a great experience being there and witnessing what was going on clinically and then having an impact uh, on the research side. As a graduate student, that's all you can ask for. Choose love, not war. All right. Led to uh, an interesting career. And so you transitioned from you know doing all the physics research to software engineering. As I understand at that time, studying software engineering wasn't as a very common path. And most software engineering started through you know physics or other similar kind of systems, electrical engineering type roles. But how did you find your way into these software engineering roles? And, and what was your first sort of industry job? Well, at the university, you know, I was funded, like I said, by a grant, and that grant was funded by NASA. NASA wanted to take satellite image processing software um, and apply it to medical imaging. A lot of it was for PR purposes to give NASA a better name. You know, people were questioning whether or not their funding was worthwhile and they wanted to have an impact on medical. But I quickly realized that it was going to be easier for me to rewrite a lot of the software instead of trying to figure out how to use the software they had created. Um, it was mm. well documented and I could figure out the algorithm. So I ended up writing software in graduate school and sort of self-taught myself how to do it and then got some early success. We were able to build some things that the clinicians were really impressed by and um, excited about. And that just started the journey. I applied for uh, a job at Picker to work on 3D workstation that they wanted to build in the MRI division. Ended up getting that job and, and then became kind of a I guess, as, as real a software engineer as you could be back then. Had to teach myself C when I first got to Picker, did that. And then we brought one of the first 3D workstations to RSNA in 1989. And that was my first exposure to RSNA and the industry in general. I was just blown away when I learned this about your background, that you worked on 3D before DICOM was even yeah. <laughs> a standard, what was it that they were trying to do? Like, why was there so much excitement around 
3D at that time and you know what ended up being some of the challenges in making that product ready for the market? Well, I mean, back then doing max, maximum intensity projection and multiplanar reformatting was really hard to do. You know, we had a computer that cost $75,000 that I was programming and we used to sell it for $225,000. <laughs> but what was paying for it was 76375, which was the 3D code. Because of the fact that you needed, you know, kind of this custom hardware to do these types of operations, you could get paid for doing reformats. And that justified the cost of a really expensive workstation, which, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to get a job programming. It was an amazing machine. It was the size of a refrigerator. And there were five or six of us that would sit and program this thing late into the night, <laughs> figuring <laughs> out how to make it go fast, which was possible. It had the capability of doing things massively parallel and vectorized um, if you knew how to do it right, uh, how to program it. So we spent a lot of our time figuring out how to make things run fast on that computer. But to get images in it was difficult. I mean, DICOM, when I first started, was 20-pin connector. And, and then DICOM 3.0 came out, and the VA said, you have to support DICOM or we're not going to buy your equipment. And that's kind of opened the floodgate. Everybody had to support DICOM after that. So that was like the early 90s when that happened. So were they taking film and then loading it into this computer to then do the 3D recons? No, we used to read like nine millimeter tapes. I think it was nine millimeter. Tape, Tape drive on the top of the computer and... <laughs> there were a couple of university groups who had sort of published on the internet the formats for everybody's medical imaging, you know, storage of, of the medical images. So we could read GE tapes and we could read Siemens tapes, but it was a pain. You know, you had to put the tape in, you had to load the software. Eventually, the industry moved to TCP IP and, and DICOM really started getting accepted, like I said, with some pressure from the customers, bigger customers. So then what led you to starting... Confirma? Well, you know, I went to Siemens um, and worked there. And then Confirma was in Seattle. It was a startup. And I really wanted to work in an earlier stage company. I had been working in big companies for quite a while. And I really wanted to start something. As a matter of fact, I was pitching my neighbor on an idea to put ultrasound images, you know, the first ultrasound images you get when you uh, do a prenatal ultrasound. I was going to put those on the internet. That was my startup idea. <laughs> and this guy worked at, a, he worked at a, a fund in Seattle. And he's like, well, that sounds like a really bad idea. But look, I've got this other company that we're funding called Confirma. And then I got pulled into there really early. Before Confirma's big pivot, I got pulled in and started working there. And then was one of the folks who sort of changed the whole direction of the company. And so what direction did they take? What were the first products they were focused on? Well, the original idea was actually to non-invasively stage breast cancer by imaging the axillary nodes of a patient using multispectral MRI images. So you'd get a series of MRI images and you'd try to determine whether or not those patients' lymph nodes had cancer in them. But during the course of the development of the company and that product, which was in a clinical trial, sentinel node biopsy became sort of the standard which if you're not familiar with sentinel node biopsy, you basically inject radioactive material and you can find the specific node to take out. You don't have to take out all of a patient's nodes to determine whether or not the cancer is spread. You can find the sentinel node and then you only biopsy that. So the need for a non-invasive technique to stage axillary nodes became much less, less important. Yeah. And at the same time, our clinical data didn't look so awesome. <laughs> so... <laughs> The idea was to either did shut you, down the company or- Did you or know or... all this before you joined? Or you joined all excited about the direction that they had and then one week on the job, by the way, boss, we found some- It took a, it took a few <laughs> months. And then of course, when I saw the clinical data, I'm like, well, nobody's going to do this. Like no, yeah. nobody's going to do this instead of sentinel node biopsy. It just doesn't make any sense. The data is not strong enough. It has to be really strong, right? Yeah. So we had a few million dollars left in the bank. The CEO had left. Me and another guy, Dan Bickford, you know, had an idea for a, a real product that we could come out with because Breast MR was um, about to take off. We knew that the International Breast MR Consortium was going to recommend Breast MR for high-risk women for screening. Previously, it had just been a staging exam. And based upon that change, the number of patients went from 200,000 to 2 million. And we knew that, you know, if we could create something that allowed people to read breast MR in a reasonable amount of time, we'd have a winner. And that's what we set out to do. There were a lot of interesting sort of 
market forces that allowed us to be successful with that. But the bottom line is that it took about 45 minutes for somebody to read a rest MR in a PAX because of the way the images were acquired. We were able to bring that down to about 10 minutes at the same time, adding cool features like computer-aided detection. So what was the actual technology? Was it a software? Was it a workstation? It was software, and it was a client that ran in Java, basically. It was a Java application. But, you know, RESTMR burst onto the scene as a screening exam, and the people who were going to read that were going to be mammographers. Yeah. Market dynamics at the time were the mammographers didn't have PAX workstations down in their reading area, right? They only had their workstations to read MAMO, or they had light boxes. So we could give them a bespoke piece of software to read their breast MR, and they didn't need the PAX workstation, which mm. could cost a hundred grand at that point. So it was very easy to go in and say, hey, read on this instead of spending all that money to get a PAX workstation installed. Just read on this thing. It's better. What um, was it like convincing the board to go after this new idea? Was one of your considerations sets just to give investors the money back and say, hey, you know what? You still got a few million left. There's not. Really we had to. Here. I mean, we had to pitch it to the investors. Yeah. Like they could have taken the money and just redistributed it, and that would have been the end of that. But the investors listened to us, and I remember the meeting let out way past midnight, where we were kind of pitching this, and they said, "All right, you guys go ahead." So, how did it ultimately play out? Did you get this product commercially adopted? Did you, you know, build up a team and and sell it, or did it? get acquired before you reached that step in the process? How did things play out for Confirma in the end? Oh yeah, it was CAD stream. So we ended up building a pretty big company. We grew to like a hundred people at one point. You know, we eventually got sold to Merge Healthcare. So, you know, Confirma is still, I think the CAD stream product is still in the market. The thing that made it grow quite large was that we did a distribution deal with GE. They would sell a bundled offering, which include included the CAD stream product as well as their breast coil. So were and, you then more focused on the software development and let them handle marketing and, and distribution? We had our own and the company spent a fair amount of time and effort, you know, kind of on our direct sales channel, but there's nothing like having, you know, a group like that as a distributor. I mean, I remember, you know, shortly after we signed the deal with GE, I was walking by the fax machine and I saw a couple of orders that came in from Brazil. And I'm like, we've never <laughs> talked to any <laughs> no idea how this happened, but GE has that kind of magic, right? The big vendors, they have so much reach. Yeah. Did you end up having to raise additional capital after that first time that you joined? Yeah. I mean, you know, so after we just started getting traction, that initial seed money, we started growing revenue pretty quickly after that on this you know new direction that we had and then we signed the GE deal and we raised capital from the existing investors it was a vc backed venture so the vcs wanted to grow it really really big but it was certainly i think a successful company and what probably one of the biggest things uh, one of the things that i'm most proud of with confirma is the fact that you know we really changed how breast mr is done i think we had an impact on that you know we were able to take algorithms that were in the literature and commercialize them and get them out there and people really benefited from it. You know, the impact we had on BreastMR is more rapid adoption, more people doing it because it was faster and easier to do. Use of the algorithms, which they may have not even been exposed to, like the CAD algorithms, all of that made BreastMR more useful clinically and sped the adoption of it. Are you um, surprised at all sitting here in 2023 by I guess the lack of breast MR adoption versus maybe where you thought things would go at the time, or do you feel like it's gotten to where you expected? I'm not surprised. We never looked at breast MR as a replacement for mammography, but rather the trend was for individualized screening. Um, we've moved beyond just the BRCA gene and now we're using density as well as other things to move women into specific personalized screening categories which can include tomosynthesis, ultrasound, MRI, and I'm, I'm sure other things are going to happen as well. And, and this trend towards individualized screening is, is more popular than ever and, and will only continue to grow um, as we find uh, more uh, ways of identifying folks who are at high risk or at risk for specific types of diseases. 
So, okay, so you sell this company, you ride the VC roller coaster for a while, and you wake up in the middle of the night, you go, I have an idea, I'm going to build a work list tool, I'm going to go start my next company. This is where you and I get a chance to meet. I actually, before starting Modality, helped a big radiology practice implement Clario. I actually did a full disclosure, I did a full research on every work list tool out there and picked Clario. So a testament to where the product got to. But I'm being a bit facetious, of course. This was not your initial idea. Pivot seemed to run in your entrepreneurial blood. So what did you do next after Confirma? What was your the next idea you pursued? Well, uh, there was a, a group in Bellingham, Washington that was applying 3D height mapping to forensic images, so fingerprints and things like that. And they were trying to improve your ability to detect and interpret subtleties in images. These were forensic images. And they wanted somebody to head up the medical arm of that and found me. And I decided to do it. So I inherited a, a team and a collection of patents. And we started trying to commercialize 3D height mapping for use in radiology. So I tried terribly to explain this concept to my wife, who's a radiologist. Basically, as I understood it, instead of looking at color or shades of gray and trying to interpret what's going on in imaging, you tried to teach people a new way of looking at an image, which is a height map. So you right. cannot just detect color difference, but height difference with the thought being that you can actually detect height difference more, I don't know what the right word is, accurately, or you, you can see the subtleties better. Yeah. Is, is that right? That's right. She I mean, looked don't... at me like I had three heads and this was the dumbest idea she'd ever heard. Actually, that's a lot of radio. I just looked at it. <laughs> so the, the basic idea is you, you can see 40 shades of gray, but you can determine with the resolution of a monitor, you can see like a thousand differences in grayscale. If you sort of turn the grayscale on its side and you project a height, we actually took that and animated it so that you could watch the intensity of something change as contrast came in and out. So mm -hmm. you could place things like contrast uptake, contrast washout, by watching height go up and down on an image that was flipped on its side. And you could visualize the structure and morphology sometimes better. The problem was that it was probably slower. It was, I would say we can say definitely, it was slower for radiologists to interpret images that way. And the other thing is, is that to get to the point where you could prove clinical outcomes from you know, interpreting and seeing these subtleties was gonna be a really long and expensive path and may or may not pan out. <laughs> so, sure. so what we decided to do was, you know, I went to the board and I told them, well, this idea isn't gonna work, but we've kind of stumbled on this other idea, very similar, like you said, to Confirma, where we had some money left over and we said, well, let's pursue this. And that was the work list product, which was created as a way to embed this height mapping technology into the workflow. Because if you could take over the work list, and launch the PAX viewer as well as your own 3D viewer, then you could give the radiologist the option of looking at the images on the PAX or on our system without having to do a deal with the PAX vendor. You know, all PAX viewers had an API that allowed you to launch them because they all were trying to get embedded into the EMR at the time. Oh, yeah. So we ended up exploiting that capability to build a work list that allowed us to embed this into the workflow without, like I said, the cooperation of the PAX vendors who didn't care about us. <laughs> Rightly so. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't their business to like enable our technology into the workflow. Was it the same investors that you had to go back to again and go, hey guys, it's me again. So <laughs> I want to use the leftover money for another crazy idea. Yeah, they, the Confirma investors were long gone. They took their exit and left. Okay, and then new, new, new crop people. <laughs> some of them who were involved in the forensic part of the business right also got involved in this side of the business and you know yeah we went to them and said same thing like i said this i think could work this work list and the reason it, i thought it could work is because private practices were getting bigger the bet from an entrepreneurial standpoint for the first company the bet was rest is going to take off it's going to get to the point where so much much of it going on that they're going to need a system to read these exams because they're hard to read the bet with this second company was we thought radiology practices were going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if they did that, they're going to have a variety of different viewers. They're going to need to launch off of the same system. They're going to want one place for all their analytics. They're going to want to have one place where they can share 
work and we can distribute it well. But mostly it was at the original stage, it was enterprise imaging. You'd have four different packs that a private practice read from, and you wanted to be able to launch all four of them off the same work list. And that was the genesis of the product. Very different than, you know, launching four different packs viewers is very different than launching four different applications, right? Yep. Choosing which application to read an exam. This was just private practices trying to optimize their workflow. What year was this? 2010, probably. 2010. 20, and so this is also kind of SaaS starting to mature as a business model, software as a service. Software as um, a service. Yeah, we pivoted actually from originally selling the software to SaaS pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, no one sets out maybe to start an enterprise workflow tool because that's not where maybe you think the biggest patient impact is or that's not where the creativity from the academic papers are. But when you actually get into getting the work done, there's so many of these different opportunities where you need better software and new workflows to support all the blossoming innovation from the sounds of it. You're going to pull together your different best in class viewers to solve all these amazing clinical problems and something yeah. else to make that there work. Was, there was a lot of work done by working group 23, which is part of DICOM Larry Tarbox's stuff that he did where the idea was that you'd look at an exam and you'd launch the proper application to read it. So if it was a breast MR, you'd launch something like CADStream. If it was a chest yeah. X-ray, launch your PAX viewer. If it was something that it had a contrast agent with specific permacokinetics, you'd launch maybe a different application. So they were working on all that. And I thought, well, that was very interesting, but really what the market wanted at that point, private practices really wanted the ability to launch just multiple packs of viewers because they own their own, the hospital would own their own, another hospital would own a different one. And they wanted yeah. to kind of pull all that together. So it was really the customers asking us for that. We knew we could build it, like I said, because of these APIs. And we, like I said, made the bet that rad practices were going to get bigger and bigger. You know, I was so, listening to the interview Nina Kotler and listening to her story and Anthony Gabriel wandered into our booth in RSNA 2012 and <laughs> we signed a deal with those guys probably because we had a similar vision. The vision was that rad practices are going to get giant, right? Yeah. And we had that conversation and then we ended up bringing Eagle Live as their first practice and, and partnering with those guys. And of course, they've grown to be huge. Yeah. Dr. Kotler was employee one of Rad Partners and boy, did they get bigger, right? 3,400 something now. And, but they're not the only ones, you know, everyone's had to bulk up a little bit to, you know, provide the scale that patients and hospitals need today. Right. And not to mention the the influence of, of money that that's had on the various incentives. But so backing up a step, so you have this idea, how long does it take to build this new product and commercialize it? Well, we... We did a deal with Seattle Children's Hospital on licensed prototype of this type of product. They had built their own work list and they had things like peer review that were done inside the work list. They had analytics, they had other stuff. They sort of had a starting point. So we took that. We ended up rewriting the whole thing. But in the beginning, we sold that to a couple of groups because we licensed it in. And that was really how we got our start. So we were able to go from, you know, idea to clinical operations and probably six months. Wow. So then once you've got a few early customers giving you feedback on what the product needs, building to suit their needs, then you've got something. Do you go out and build a sales team? Like how'd you go about getting sales traction initially? You know, do you remember the first sale that came from not from say friends of the network or people that were maybe initially getting in on the other products that you had, you know, just the first people to come say, Hey, I want to buy this Clario work list. How'd you get uh, it out there? It was all word of mouth. I mean, I think, you know, I can't remember the first customer we got that wasn't referred or somebody we had worked with before. It was one private practice having success with it. And then they would all know about it. <laughs> it's a very tight knit group. And then we would take them one at a time and they would all have their own little requirements. We were growing the business as fast as we could, but adding requirements as we brought on each customer. And eventually we got to the point where customers were asking us for best practices as opposed to them telling us what they wanted. And that's just normal as the company matures. You know, that's kind of a normal cycle to go through. Were you at this time doing, what roles were you playing the most? Were you doing mostly sales or were you helping still build the product? Um, raising money and selling primarily. I had an influence on the product direction sort of at the 
top level, just the way a sales organization would really. And then we had a good team who was, you know, executing on all of that stuff and, and really performing well. I mean, the Clario product was written primarily by two engineers over the course wow. of about five years, I think, for really develop something that was mature. Yeah. So how much money did you guys raise? Probably six, $7 million after our pivot. After the pivot, you got a little bit of traction and said, okay, we need some more money. And mm -hmm. then did you consider raising more money and trying to get bigger or what necessitated a sale at that point? Did you guys kind of think through various paths forward? Remember, we had investors going back to 08 who had From the early, earliest idea. Yeah, so people were ready to sell. Clearly could have grown it bigger and we were cash flow positive at that point. So, you know, we could have continued to grow organically or taken in additional money or sell. And the Intellerad opportunity came about because you know, we had 18 common customers. Private practices liked Intellerad, but that's obvious. That's always been the case. And we were in a lot of private practices and they, they were backed by private equity, which made us sort of an ideal tuck in before the PE firm sold it to another PE firm. So the fit was great. And our goal was to make sure that they acquired us and they actually kept using the product because <laughs> a lot of times things get acquired and then the team leaves and everybody just forgets about it and the product disappears. We really wanted the product to stay around and it has, which, you know, I think is a success on both sides. Well, I imagine too, Intellerad would have had to build their own workless product if they like, didn't buy you. They um, had already, yeah. but yeah. you know, all tax vendors, none of them had really sort of put the time and effort into it. You know, we went from an enterprise work list where our big value add was being able to launch multiple packs off the same work list to the point where we started selling more of our work lists to single packs environments than multi-packs environments. That by adding more and more functionality into the work list, which, you know, we could show pretty clearly gave practices up to 10% improvement in their productivity, which is, as you know, huge. I mean, yeah, I mean, right to the bottom line, especially in a time when everyone is overworked and can't get all the work done. Yeah, we definitely knew we had something when, you know, we got a couple of service calls from people who had gone live who told us that the work list was not working because there were no exams on the list because they had read them all. You know, then they're like, oh, we can get rid of a couple shifts here. This is pretty cool. Yeah, right. amazing. So take us under the hood a little bit. You were cash flow positive. How big was the company at that point in terms of revenues? Well, about 12 people, you know, a few million dollars. A few million in revenue. And sure. did you run a process? Did you hire a broker and say, we want to sell? Or is it someone calls you and says, Chris, <laughs> it's Intellerad. We're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Like, is it like the movies? How does this all work? Well, we had, you know, we're, you're always talking to people about possible exits. We had talked to a lot of folks prior to this, but it was never really a perfect fit. Like I said before, you know, until Intellerad, we had talked to them a year before. And then I met with Francois from Novacap at RSNA, and we decided that this might be the right time. I gave him a sort of ballpark idea of what we could get, ran it back through the investors, whether they would be interested at that level. And they said, yeah. So we ended up working on a, on a deal, it took us probably six months to get that done. Awesome. So then you sell to Intellirad, you stick around and help them kind of figure out how to integrate the product, scale the product. At some point, you decide I'm a company man. I'm going to be at Intellrad for the rest of my life or no, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. It's all I know how to do. I need to like get out of this big company world and go start something again. Well, so one of the big things, like I said, we were a tuck in for Novacap, but then Intellrad got sold to HG Capital and I was on that deal team selling Intellrad essentially to HG. Um, and there were a lot of suitors at that point. Uh, a lot of people interested in Telerad and ended up picking HG as the group that acquired it. And of course, with that type of sale, there's lots of changes. And there was lots of changes at the upper management too. They brought in a whole team. Yeah. I was done with my two-year commitment. So it was a good time for me to go and try something new. So after your experience with multiple startups, pivots, being at the cutting edge of radiology time and time again, it won't be too surprising that AI kind of is the next space, next frontier for you to kind of dive into, though I think you've taken an approach within AI that is very, very unique, very clever. 
what inspired sort of reveal DX? How did you find product market fit this way? And, you know, how did you take the learnings from your prior pivots and apply that here? Well, first and foremost, it was, I didn't want to start from scratch again and I didn't want to pivot again. So the idea was, look, we're going to find something, you know, this was COVID times. And I knew there was a ton of cash that had been put into building very early stage ideas around artificial intelligence and radiology and medical imaging. And because of COVID, I, I sort of had a sense, you know, especially working in Intellirad that there were going to be a few companies for sale and maybe find a company that had been around for a while, had really good tech, but couldn't get market traction for one reason or another and buy that company. The idea was to buy that company instead of um, building something from zero and spending another 10, 12 years on that project. If I could find something like a distressed asset, essentially, then we could accelerate the time to exit, which is nice for investors. You know, at the same time, sort of save a really good idea from the trash heap, possibly, and uh, maybe avoid a, a pivot because the earlier stage something is, the more likely you are to kind of have to correct course, which is inefficient and time-consuming, et cetera. So we've gathered a group of folks that I knew from the industry and told them about the one I found that I was most interested in. And we raised some money and we ended up buying uh, Mindshare Medical here in Seattle. So it wasn't called Reveal DX that came later. So you you had the idea to buy an AI distressed asset before you found the one. So this was the game plan. And then you looked at, I presume, dozens of different opportunities. And, and so then what drew you to this concept? Well, the, the, as I said, the technology was fantastic. I was looking at the analysis Michael Calhoun, who's the founder, had done of, of the data that he had and, and how he had built the algorithm. I, I knew it was the right way to go. It was more of a radiomics-based approach. And seems like he had solved one of the hardest problems, and that is generalizability of the algorithm. So, he, you know, it was trained on a very diverse data set, but the specifics of the algorithm made it such that you could apply it anywhere and it would work, which is <laughs> like definitely a requirement if you're going to commercialize something. And we knew, or at least we thought we knew that this product could be reimbursed. You know, we had watched, one of the companies I had watched pretty closely was Heartflow because they had achieved reimbursement for their technology. And when you look at patient outcomes, when you look at the importance of the application clinically, there was really no contest. I mean, if you can detect lung cancer earlier, you're gonna have a massive impact on patient outcome. Yeah. Because unlike breast cancer and unlike prostate cancer, where there have been some advances in terms of your ability to treat, it's been pretty lackluster progress on the lung cancer side. So you we know, haven't actually gotten into the product yet. What is what is Reveal DX help patients with? Yeah, lung nodules are found commonly. Our data suggests that there's probably about 14,000 lung nodules found every day in the United States. And those lung nodules, you know, need follow-up of some sort, right? Figuring out which nodules to follow closely, which ones to biopsy, which ones to do PET scanning on, you know, which ones to ignore. Those decisions are very difficult. And for this particular type of cancer or this particular type of clinical finding, it, you, it's not easy to biopsy it, right? So you can't just stick a needle on everything you see um, in the lung, right? Especially with these patients, which tend to have a lot of comorbidities. There's a high complication rate. Um, so you're kind of stuck. At the same time, you had NLST, you had the Nelson trial, you had all these studies coming out saying you can screen for lung cancer using CT and you can do a reduction in mortality in that cohort from lung cancer, 20% reduction, just massive. You know, you had reimbursement already for lung cancer screening and, you know, remembering my days with Confirma, right? We went from a staging exam to a screening exam and the market exploded. But what happened here was a little more subtle. There's so many chest CTs that are done. Really what happened is there was this great awareness of lung nodules, that lung cancer screening and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force sort of shined a light on this by paying for lung cancer screening. People started to look at lung nodules and say, hey, you know what? We find a lot of these incidentally. We need to track these. And then data came out showing, you know, from the deluge folks, Baptist, et cetera, that incidentally found nodules are probably about as dangerous as those found during a screening exam. So the likelihood that they could be malignant. So the market was there. You didn't have to wait for the adoption of lung cancer screening. We already have a market. 
and there's a lot of awareness around the importance of following these lung nodules and figuring out what they are. And you can't, like I said, just biopsy them all. So it's just perfect. If there was a tool that you could apply that could not invasively assess the risk of a lung nodule becoming cancer or being cancerous, that would be a hit. And it would probably be reimbursable because this is such a difficult problem. And when we looked at like, you know, ANOVA analysis and other types of mathematical techniques to figure out what we were seeing compared to what a human could see, we believe that we've got the ability to detect radiomic biomarkers inside of lung nodules that give you an idea, a better idea of what the risk is of that nodule. And then, of course, we published our study after we bought the company and restarted it and recapitalized it. We finished our clinical trial with Fred Hutch, and we were able to um, publish that paper last September in the JACR. You know, in that study, we showed a 50% of cancers in our screening cohort, up to 45%, about that much, up to about 45% of the cancers we can find prior to an interval scan, and at the same time, reduce false positives in about 29%. So 29% of the nodules we can clear or downgrade, ignore. Yeah, downgrade to a lower level of concern, and at the same time, sort of find those lung rads twos and threes, those early, smaller cancers, but identify the ones that are high risk that need action right away, even though they might be smaller. So this sounds a little different than some of your last startups where you're building the technology, but maybe not reliant on changing the clinical standard of care through reimbursement regulation. So kind of a new path forward in a sense. I don't know if you'd agree with that. How is that different? Are you finding it unpredictable? Or are you feeling like, no, 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 we're right on the path. We know exactly, you know, we just do milestone A, milestone B, milestone C. And this time next year, we're going to be cleared so that then we'll have a code and we'll be in enough hospitals that will have enough traction that we can then, you know, find a distributor or sell or something. Or does it feel like, oh, I just sit around waiting until the regulators call and say, okay, Chris, you know, this is ready. You know, how, how does that feel, the difference? Well, yeah, reimbursement, you know, is challenging, right? And I'm super thankful for all the work that others have done <laughs> with NTAP codes, sort of navigating that, figuring that out. We can watch, we can learn from what other people have done in this. And we state. talked a little bit about NTAP codes on this podcast with Nina Cutler, I think, when we were talking about Viz AI and some of the other companies that have got them. New technology add-on payments, and there's new technology ambulatory payment. And we're the ambulatory kind. We are more similar to HeartFlow than we are to Viz. You know, our reimbursement. Okay. So it's not like we're blazing completely new trails here, but it is still really new to navigate these waters. And <laughs> there's things I'm learning, you know, different regional Macs, <laughs> you know, where they are, that they exist, that type of stuff. But I think, fingers crossed, I think we're going to be able to get some reimbursement immediately following FDA clearance. Which is scheduled for when? When, when are you hoping to get to FDA clearance? We're really hoping to get it by RSNA, but that's going to be up to the government. Yeah. It's so hard for an entrepreneur where you're just used to let, let's go sell something and then we'll build it. I think right. that was probably your approach a little bit with Clario. Yeah. Our work list, what do you need? You need the work list to do this? Cool. Yeah, we could do that. And sometimes you could, sometimes you couldn't, but you're confident you can figure it out quickly enough versus here. You can't sell it until, you know, the government rubber stamps it. And so that's a hard position to be in. So I'm curious one other question, you, you said something here about lung cancer screening being a big opportunity relative to say breasts or some of the other areas, but the you know lung cancer screening rates have not taken off as much as you would think, given we already have a screening tool that is extraordinarily effective, that is completely underutilized. So why is that and how does that trend or concerning reality impacts reveal DX's prospects? Yeah, I think, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of nodules that are found every day in the United States already because of lung CT. And of course, we want lung cancer screening to take off, but we're not relying on it for our business to work. There are plenty of nodules out there already that people need to follow and act on. In terms of like, you know, lung cancer screening, I think maybe part of it, you know, the reason it's not taking off is branding. People are kind of afraid to go in and get screened for cancer, but they're happy to get a lung health checkup. There are groups working on figuring out exactly how we need to change lung cancer screening to drive adoption up. You know, Kim Sandler, who's on our medical advisory board, 
has been sort of targeting women who get mammography and those women who smoke were getting mammography, getting them into lung cancer screening at the same time to try to build momentum about around that. And that seems to be working really well. That's smart. So there are some innovative ideas, especially on the clinical side, that are going to drive lung cancer screening up. But like I said, to a certain extent, it's not as important to us as a business. We want it to happen, but we can still be successful with the current volume of CT scans that are done. Got it. Makes sense. It's definitely a passion area of mine. From what I can gather, it seems like one of the ways radiologists can save the most lives in the immediate is driving up lung cancer screening rates. And it's so frustrating how we've not found the success that we would anticipate there. But tools like this can certainly help where now the downstream costs aren't as high because when we get these screenings, we can more confidently know what to do next and cause less pain for the patients who, you know, you can say, hey, you're in good shape here. Biggest cancer killer um, by far, twice as many deaths caused by lung cancer as the second biggest, which is colon cancer. Amazing data from you know, like folks like the ILCAP group who, you know, have been following patients for 20 years. They have a survival rate that's close to almost exactly 80% over 20 years if you find the wow. cancer. Whereas your five-year survival rate for lung cancer sort of globally is single digits. You can catch this disease early. You can have this profound impact on the patient's life. And, you know, we're hoping to take that 20% reduction in mortality that was shown in several clinical studies and, and move it even higher with our technology that allows you to get these subvisual radiomic biomarkers and incorporate them into your decision-making process. Our big competitor right now in terms of, you know, altering different types of clinical information is circulating tumor DNA or proteomics. But, you know, right now that technology just isn't ready. There aren't enough biomarkers in the blood at the early stage for you to detect them reliably. You know, and again, that might change, probably will over time. But when that happens, it would probably make sense to couple the radiomic biomarkers with those biomarkers, right. and build a multiomic product that could essentially function as a non-invasive biopsy. So last question on Reveal DX, is it, are you happy with your thought here or is it too soon to tell if this was a good idea to try and do this kind of entrepreneurship through IP? acquisition? I'm really happy with it so far. I mean, we, we bought the company when the existing investors for Mindshare were kind of unsure about what the future was for the company. They were unable to complete their clinical trial because you couldn't go into Fred Hutch Cancer Center because of COVID. Oh. And that's where the data resided. So the existing investors had no idea when that was going to become possible and you know if the data was going to look good. So they decided to sell the company reasonable thing to do. We were able to get back into Fred Hodge. We were able to get the data, process the data, publish the data, and it looked great. We're really happy with the publication. We've since done a few others. And like I said, we've been validating that the product works no matter where you put it, right? So the generalizability has totally panned out in my mind. The publication and the definitive study has shown that we can make a clinical impact uh, with the product. Now we've got a reimbursement code that we can use as well, which panned out without really as much effort as we thought. So the product's really ready for commercialization in the U.S. And hopefully we'll be able to sort of follow in the steps of HeartFlow and others and become a big company at a, sort of a moderate investment. You know, we haven't put more than a few million dollars into the company so far, but we're quite a bit further than what we would have been if we had started from scratch. Really interesting story, and uh, I'm excited to check in on it in another year and, and see how the, the next few milestones pan out. Talk to us a little bit about zooming out and looking at the arc of your career. You've had many experiences on the capital side. You know, a lot of the listeners to this podcast, as well as me, you know, are aspiring entrepreneurs, current entrepreneurs, maybe they're radiologists who didn't get a chance to take a, a startup class, uh, if there is such a thing. And so, you know, what are your thoughts on raising capital, having been through it several times, you know, particularly in the radiology space, which is a very specific industry? Yeah. I mean, it's a little tough, honestly, to come up with a company idea in radiology that's really right for sort of traditional venture capital. You know, venture's looking to put a lot of money to work 
and get a really, really big return. And if you look at the exits, you know, that are possible that are historically in radiology, they're not, you know, usually in that category. And that's tough, you know, for entrepreneurs to kind of come to grips with, right? Is that your idea might be very good. It might be a successful company, but it might not be something that's right for a VC. Um, it just might not be big enough. And that brings you into the world of angels or private equity. And that's a whole different style and, and way of raising capital that um, in some ways can be harder because you've got a lot more people on your cap table, um, but it might be the right way to go. So it's really finding the right instrument, right? You know, we're, we're sort of funded by angels and ourselves, you know, the founders, and then we will grow after FDA clearance when we're generating revenue, probably not with VC money. It'll probably come from private equity or some other sort of source of growth capital because our model fits, you know, what we plan in terms of financial projections, it, it sort of fits into those uh, style of investing pretty well. And that's really what you need. You need the fit. And I, I'm, my little soapbox is that, you know, don't pat yourself on the back if you raise a big pile of money because you've just generated a huge problem for yourself, right? <laughs> hey, you know, great. I would raise a hundred million dollars. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to be satisfied if, unless you're going to sell it for a billion now. Okay. So where's that going to come from? And it's pretty uncommon in radiology to have that billion dollar exit. It's not that it can't happen, but it's just uncommon because of the size of the space. And the fact that, you know, you've got groups that are pretty dominant, like in this space, you know, GE, Philip Siemens, you know, they, they take the lion's share of the money, right? And, uh, you know, eventually you're going to have to work with those guys one way or another. So you're sort of painting a target on your back if you try to grow too big and taking a lot of money kind of puts pressure on you to do that. So we're, we're being somewhat conservative in terms of how much money we raise. Plus, look, you know, you raise a hundred million bucks, you're probably going to waste a lot of it. You know, nobody's selling radiology products by taking out Super Bowl ads, right? <laughs> we know customers are, there's only 30,000 radiologists in the United States, which is the biggest market. They're easy to find, right? You know, so it can be a waste. That experience definitely rings true for me when we were starting our company we bootstrapped for a long time. We're doing really, really well. And we eventually got to the point where, you know, we need a few more engineers. We want to make this product right. We need to hire a salesperson. We need to build a little more content. And so we, we needed some capital to grow as fast as we knew we could. And we looked at every source and we had lots of positive conversations with VCs, but very quickly realized that it would be a mistake to take their money. There were actually a lot of VCs that were quite interested, but then they go, okay, great. So how quickly can you expand beyond radiology? you're going to hit the ceiling on radiology addressable market very quickly because of the number that you have out there. And so you're going to have to get outside of your, your core competency very quickly to reach an addressable market big enough for VC. What's neat though about health tech is there's a lot of people with a lot of money and a lot of experience in healthcare. And so I think there are in healthcare actually probably more ways to find alternative funding sources, whether it be small cap, private equity, angel investors, physician investing groups, hospitals with now investing arms, grants. There's so many different types of funding sources that are available to, to folks. And I think private equity's, you know, got a a bad branding problem right now as it pertains to, you know, their impact in the physician services realm. But private equity, by the way, venture capital is a form of private equity. Private equity just means any investment that is not a public equity. So anything that's not the stock market is private equity. You know, I, I think that really, I think people are kind of using the terms incorrectly, like you pointed out, that private equity itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, for, even for healthcare, but leverage buyouts come with their own sort yes. of set, right? And we're not talking about leverage buyouts here because you're not. We're talking about investment, You don't even right? have a revenue yet. So what are you leverage? You know, what are you buying out? But, um, you know, um, I think people just need to be careful in terms of- yeah when they're either selling their company or when they're selling their practice, you know, you need to get down into the details of how they're doing it and what, you know, the impact could be of this different financial instrument that you're kind of marrying yourself to. Well, for every story uh, that you read in the news about a company raising a lot of money, there are 10 times more companies that were financed a different way. 
that you don't read about. And so I think it's helpful for you to share your experience and story on sort of different ways to think about financing. And, you know, people should reach out to entrepreneurs like you and and others that we have on the show for advice, because I think there's a lot more opportunities and ways to build out there beyond just, I don't know if I have a billion dollar idea, so I guess I can't do it. I think there's a lot of other ways uh, to well, build the company. A lot of people, I think, are kind of unaware of the, the amount of opportunity there is to, to take in debt in different ways nowadays. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really attractive about healthcare is that you get a customer or you get a business and it tends to be very sticky. You don't have customers doing mass exit, you know, exits to different packs, right? That's yeah. not going to happen over six months that somebody's going to drop, you know, 50% of their users, right? People stay once they pick a product because it's so hard to change in healthcare, which means that the sales cycle is longer, right? In healthcare, that's a problem. But once you get a customer, your churn is a lot lower. And once you have those customers with that super low churn, you can go to a group like SAS Capital or somebody and you can actually borrow money against future revenues because of the fact that you've got a 2% churn rate. And we did that at Clario and you know, I'm sure I'll do that now. There's warrants and maybe some other things that these groups like to have, but it's very small compared to going out and doing another round. It's much more efficient to use debt that way. But again, you need to be careful about your debt, right? You need to be careful how you're taking it in, whether or not, you know, you don't want to leverage your company too much because, you know, if you take in that capital, make sure you have a really good use for it. Well said. Any other uh, advice for the entrepreneurs who might be listening, people interested in breaking into the digital health space? Well, I think your point about advice is a good one. It's been one of the hardest things for me to learn. I think a, a lot of first-time entrepreneurs have maybe imposter syndrome or you know, whatever you want to call it, they have a hard time taking advice. You know, by the time you've done your third or fourth startup, when somebody gives you advice or criticizes even one of the things that might be in your pitch deck or in your business plan, you respond with more curiosity than you do defensiveness, right? And I've found that that's one of the most valuable things that I, I wish I had had earlier. You kind of get to the point where you stop defending your ideas and you start just being real curious about how to make your approach better. I mean, you're usually better at it, you know, the second or third time around, but when somebody gives you advice, you know, respond with curiosity and talk to those folks, even though it might be difficult because they might generate a lot of work with that. I'll, I'll leave this, you know, as an open offer to anybody who wants to connect with me on LinkedIn or run business ideas by me. Always happy to do it. A lot of folks are, but I certainly am happy to do that because I find it interesting. And again, curious and fun to talk about this kind of stuff. Well, I appreciate that. I'm going to take you up on it. And I know our audience will too. And uh, we just wish you and the Reveal the X team uh, a whole lot of success. And I can guarantee you that if you are successful, there's going to be a whole crop of entrepreneurship through acquisition that follows you. So just get ready to ride that wave. And we wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Chris, for coming on. Thanks, Daniel. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.